Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome, colleagues, um, listeners. Uh, this is the Public Health Power Hour, and my name is Steve Hamill. I'm Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies, a global public health organization. And you know, Vital Strategies believes that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes good health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicines and vaccines, and healthy food. It means that we all have access to places to get exercise, and it means culture, supportive culture, and removing barriers to health like bias. And we truly believe that the COVID-19 pandemic, which has left economies and lives in wreck, has shown us we have so much more to do to protect people's health. And we believe that we have to reimagine public health so that it's the center of commerce, social, and civic life. In fact, we recently launched a campaign to bring greater visibility to public health and try and demonstrate the many ways it intersects with all of our lives every day um, and build to mobilize people to champion public health. We hope you'll be part of that. And, you know, he, we get together most Thursdays uh, to learn about different areas of public health, what change could look like and how we can contribute to change. We've had a fantastic um discussions on a series of different topics like health equity, how corporations have worked to shape health policy or challenge positive changes in health policy and much more. If you've missed these episodes, you can listen back on SoundCloud by listening uh, or visiting soundcloud.com slash vital strategies. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover here um, in discussion, drop us an email at powerhour@vitalstrategies.org. This week, we're centering our discussion on public health and activism, and I'm really excited by our panel of experts who are going to speak to the individual and social costs of vaccine inequity, lessons that we can learn from uh, decades of activism within the HIV AIDS movement um, and ways which public health can become more active now. Um, I'd like to introduce each of our panelists and warm, kind of warm up the discussion in the room with a segment uh, we call Health News. Um, we've asked each panelist to talk about a news story that caught their eye recently. Um, and we have about 10 minutes for this. If you have a story you'd like to share, we, we'd be happy to uh, bring you up to share a story. Um, I'd like to introduce our three guests. The first one is Greg Gonzalez. He's Associate Professor, Department of Microbial Diseases at Yale School of Public Health. His research focuses on improving the response to epidemic diseases, including HIV AIDS, and that's an area he's been active in for more than 30 years. Welcome, Greg. Would you like to share a story that caught your eye this week? Okay, two stories. Um, uh, uh, two from the New York Post, um, in which 
potentially revisit the vaccine mandate and the mask mandate in schools, vaccine mandates for public employees, I assume. Um, he doesn't even have a health commissioner yet, but he's making health policy, and it sounds like he's starting off on the wrong foot. The other one is in the New York Times yesterday, in which Moderna, the maker of one of the mRNA vaccines, uh, decided that the NIH researchers that paved the way for their own vaccine had no involvement in the intellectual property and, and development of that vaccine and made a patent application excluding the NIH. Um, we'll talk about Moderna's greed probably later in this call, but there they are on the front page of the New York Times. Thank you. And, you know, you started off on this, off on the right beat. And, you know, there's no public health without politics, right? I mean, in, in, speaking to Eric Adams and, you know, politic, policy and politics and, and science are all wrapped up together. Fatima Hassan is our next, uh, next panelist. She's a human rights lawyer and activist who's dedicated her professional life to defending and promoting human rights in South Africa, especially in the field of HIV AIDS and is the founder of Health Justice Initiative. Um, welcome, Fatima. Did you bring an article you'd like to share with our audience? Thanks. So clearly, Greg and I aligned because the article I also wanted to share was entitled Moderna and the U.S., obviously the U.S. government, at odds over the vaccine patent rights. And that was uh, published in the New York Times on the 9th of November, uh, some great reporting by Cheryl Stolberg and Rebecca Robbins. Um, so we can talk about Moderna, like Greg said, and its greed and the billion that it's going to be making this year, next year, and presumably for the next few years later in the show. The second piece of news that caught my eye today was the World Trade Organization, which whom I believe has actually let us down and has been, you know, one of the biggest obstacles in this pandemic has basically said to NGOs today that for the upcoming ministerial conference in two weeks' time, there will be no NGO space inside the WTO building and that there will be limiting badges to uh, one per NGO. Really concerning and, and looking forward to getting into that. Um, our last panelist is Maria Surungi Sahai. She's a Tanzanian activist and the main force behind Change Tanzania, a social campaign to drive people for greater civic participation. She's also an expert in media advocacy, particularly active in areas of women's empowerment, including education and combating discrimination. Welcome, Maria. It's so great to have you. Um, is there an article you'd like to share? Thank you so much for having me, and I'm really looking forward uh, to this discussion for many reasons. And one of the first article, um, well, I would say it's like a news uh, item that caught my eye, was like a couple of days ago, um, I think two days ago, um, there was a short story, it didn't make a lot of headlines, um, that activists um, in Kenya uh, were marching and protesting in order to demand more uh, antiretroviral uh, drugs because there's a shortage which has been hit, uh, hitting a number of countries due to COVID. So uh, based on what we're discussing and based on the whole issue around COVID, but also about public health activism, it just struck me like, wow, this is the kind of story I would really like to share in this space. Thank That's you. That's great. And I, I hope we can get to talking, you know, the different types of how advocacy manifests itself in different ways, including the kind of marches, direct action, mobilization that you discussed. So we will get um, move on to the main discussion here. And I'd like to just set take a minute to set the foundation for our discussion. Um, you know, you've heard at the top of this, the hour that Vital Strategies is working to reimagine public health as kind of a bolder guiding force for societies. And my colleagues and I were thinking about this profoundly difficult moment 
with vaccine equity, climate change, you know, the reach of multinational corporations that are kind of driving an epidemic of non-communicable disease and, and the incredible inequity that's been exposed for everyone to see in this moment. And, and thinking about where can we find lessons? Where can we find inspiration to do more and be more assertive? And of course, we started to think about the HIV AIDS movement, which is one of the most you know, successful public health efforts of the last 50 years and really embedded at its core the kind of public energy and mass momentum to drive change that that we're feeling like this moment needs. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, we have about 50 minutes and a, a huge range of topics to discuss, including activism in general, you know, the vaccine equity challenge and, and lessons from the HIV AIDS movement. Greg, I thought we could begin with you. You you now have a PhD in public health. You're teaching at the Yale School of Public Health, but that's not how your career started. You really started as a, you know, a street level activist, as I understand it. Can you take us back to that moment in the HIV AIDS epidemic? You know, what was happening? What got you involved in, in public health activism to start? Thanks, Stephen. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old now, um, and my involvement in AIDS started in the 1980s. And um, for those of your listeners who were around then, it was a pretty dark time. There was no antiretroviral therapy um, uh, to really talk of that could save your lives. And so there's a great deal of desperation. And um, I was a young man and knew much about HIV AIDS and um, uh, didn't pay much attention until I met somebody who was HIV positive, and then I went looking for information. And there was no such thing as the internet. Maybe there was, but there was no way to find information easily on this new disease. And I went looking for um, information and found a group called ACT UP Boston. Um, and that room was filled with people who were desperate for information, desperate for hope, and desperate for political action on behalf of their uh, local, state, and federal leaders. And um, that's how I got involved in, in the first place. And then, you know, sort of over the next 10 years or maybe 15 years, the HIV AIDS movement became much more mainstream, became a powerful force for change and successfully advocated for changes that most wouldn't have thought possible. Everything from accelerating drugs research, which was sort of like an ivory tower, you know, active to establishing the Global Fund, which has been a force for good for decades. And, you know, what did it take to make change at that scale over the next 10 years from your perspective? So a couple of things. Um, there are a bunch of, there, there's more than one AIDS movement, right? And so the the early AIDS movement was a collection of different sort of social movements with different sort of um, histories and trajectories. And a lot of the early work, um, you know, was driven by um, um, gay men who had access to power. And, it, you know, at least in the context of ACT UP, which was a diverse group, they were able to leverage the the resources of um, the industries they worked in from advertising to, to, to academia, to other places to, to sort of get the attention of government. So we were working with lawyers and 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 lots of people who, who could put pressure on, on the government. We had allies in Congress, Henry Waxman, Ted Kennedy, and we were able to, to make significant legal and policy gains um, by, by leveraging privilege in that way. It didn't um, actually work to deal with the, the people who are still forgotten in this AIDS epidemic, which are people of color, rural people, young gay men of color. Um, when you think about the global um, pandemic. You know, Emily Bass has a new book called To End the Plague, and I think she's actually on this call. Um, but what Emily describes is actually there is a robust movement of people 
around the world who were doing the same thing that I did in, in the early 80s, is looking for hope and looking for help um, from Brazil to Thailand to South Africa to Uganda. Um, and they were starting to advocate for the drugs in 1996 that were saving lives in places like the U.S. And um, and so what happened as, you know, this sort of urban um, movement that, that gave rise to, to groups like ACT UP, became a worldwide movement, which was much more grassroots, much more diverse, um, and was able to put pressure um, on governments all across the board um, from every continent on this uh, on this planet to, to establish things like the Global Fund and PEPFAR. So it was it was the, the later AIDS movement became much more of a grassroots distributed um, movement, really led by colleagues like Fatima and hers in South Africa, people in Brazil, Thailand, Uganda and other places. That's great. And, you know, you've, Fatima, Greg has brought you in. And I was wondering if we could turn to you to also understand how that relates to the challenges of this day, you know, uh, you know, and particularly maybe digging into your perspective as a lawyer and a social justice activist working out of South Africa, you know, in some of the ways that that grassroots movement that Greg spoke of, the global movement, is what we need to confront in that in some ways a challenge that's similar, which is, you know, this point where, um, you know, the empowered few as are acting as if there's a crisis that doesn't touch them. Do you see parallels in this moment? Mm, thanks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's the reason why many of us have regrouped, uh, so to speak. I mean, many of the people who are currently working on issues of vaccine equity and trying to address and deal with vaccine apartheid currently in COVID are actually people who all connected 20 years ago on the HIV AIDS movement. So, you know, Greg's being a bit modest, but we brought him down to South Africa to actually teach us about how ARVs worked and to ensure that we had a program that dealt with treatment literacy so that communities themselves would understand what HIV AIDS meant for them, for their bodies, and how they needed to treat it and how they needed to mitigate it and what ARVs could, could do or couldn't do, uh, why it was important to have CD4 testing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so many of these groups are connected now, and I think what's really inspiring is that this has given birth to a new generation of activists who are not just interested in public health, but are interested in health equity and are interested in dealing with the systemic issues um, that basically mean that many of us in Africa and Latin America and in the global south have not had immediate access to life-saving technologies like vaccines in the COVID era because of patent monopolies. And so it's been this, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it wonderful because we've had a few million people die in the last 15 months, but being this interesting uh, intersection of different movements one from the HIV AIDS movement, the climate change movement, and then to, you know, a group of people who are trying really hard to deal with the systemic issues around uh, intellectual property barriers. And, you know, we can talk about that later later in the show. The parallels are, of course, you know, uh, jarring, right? And we, we wrote about this already in early 2020. We said, if we do not have a system reset, if we don't deal with the real political power issues, and that's why the Moderna-US uh, feud for me is a very interesting um, story, uh, because if we don't deal with these issues, then we will have the similar situation playing out that we had with HIV AIDS, where Africa will be last in line, which is exactly what we warned about, exactly what's happening. Less than 10% of people on our continent are fully vaccinated, not because we're hesitant, but because we just haven't had sufficient supplies coming in on a you know expedited basis, like the kind of access you have had in the global north. 
Yeah. I, you know, what I find so compelling about what, or one thing that's very compelling about what you and Greg and Fatima are talking about is the connections between um, engaging directly with communities, uh, generating grassroots power that, you know, may manifest themselves as things like, you know, you know, direct actions or mobilizations or marches and much very technical areas like inter intellectual property rights and, and the WTO. I want to also bring Maria into this conversation. Um, Maria, you know, speaking of connecting with communities, um, I know your Change Tanzania campaign was a is a force for mobilizing Tanzanias to expire and aspire for change. Um, and maybe you could share a little bit about what sparked your work in this area, and uh, particularly how media has uh, allowed you to generate momentum for change among Tanzanians and elsewhere in the continent, um, and how that might connect to this moment. Yes, uh, thank you so much. And I think it's a very important question. In fact, uh, one of the reasons I've been so excited to be part of this discussion is because I see a lot of parallel that maybe those who are in the, in the richer north uh, may not be aware of. So uh, very quickly, I think in terms of mobilization, it is very important to understand that when you talk about, uh, let's say, mobilization around a certain public health issue, then the environment has to be conducive for that kind of uh, mobilization and organization. And what has happened with COVID-19, it came at a time when in Tanzania, we were facing a, a double crisis, a double crisis in the sense that there was at that time a regime uh, led by then uh, the deceased uh, President Magufuli, who did not accept um, COVID, the existence of COVID-19. In, in fact, what happened is there was uh, preliminary me measures that were taken. And then he announced that uh, after three days of prayer, uh, there was no longer COVID-19 in the country. And that led basically to uh, a systemic denial of COVID-19 while the disease was raging everywhere around us. And it was also raging within the borders, but there was denialism. In fact, it got so bad that talking about COVID-19 was a taboo. They didn't call it COVID. They said that that person has got breathing difficulties. Um, suddenly, um, the, 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 what happened is they challenged the results from the national lab uh, therefore, they stopped measuring, they stopped giving out public figures around COVID-19. So we faced uh, a lot of challenges because we couldn't suddenly mobilize and tell people to even take basic precautions because it was deemed to be unacceptable. Uh, one of the things that I remember we had to fight online, and then, by the way, that meant that we were an extreme minority and we were exposed to a lot of uh, personal a physical, a digital security threats, is how dare we contravene an authoritarian figure like the president? Uh, as a result, just so that we get to the whole issue around uh, a vaccine equity and all that, Tanzania only started receiving vaccines after the death of Magufuli and months later uh, with the vice president taking the helm and basically acknowledging that there is uh, COVID-19. Now, how does that uh, go hand in hand with what has been happening with the HIV AIDS activism? It has been because the same kind of stigma that we saw around HIV AIDS in the early days, whereby people wouldn't want to go to be tested because they would be scared if they would declare themselves HIV positive, it would be a stigma. The same thing was happening in Tanzania with COVID-19. So what we, what we had 
was by the time we, we actually managed to get on the COVAX initiative and to, to start receiving the first batch of vaccines, there was a huge resistance in the community. But I remember throughout we have been we had our hashtags saying you know Corona Ipo meaning there is Corona or Tunataka Chanjo we we want vaccines. But by the time the vaccines came, we ended up having some actually surprisingly reasonable people people that that we thought are reasonable who went on and and were denying or questioning the efficacy of vaccine. So not only were we lagging behind in vaccine equity, but we still even today face a lot of stigma, a lot of misinformation, a lot of fake news. We saw some, even some politicians stand out and, and, and publicly declare, still even after the death of Magufuli, that you know they will not be vaccinated because there's a problem. So I think it is so compounded that the reason I find that there's so much lessons to be learned from the HIV AIDS movement and how that was done. It's very important, but it has to be understood that in this case, when you talk about COVID-19, it goes hand in hand with human rights. It goes hand in hand with the freedom of expression, the freedom of speech. It goes hand in hand with freedom of organizing because there is a lot of laws which do not allow people and, and, uh, and civil, civil uh, society organizations to organize. So we're left with a digital space, which is relatively safe in the sense that um, a lot of people are not using their real names. Those of us who do are receiving a lot of backlash. Uh, but nonetheless, that remains one space where relatively open, uh, openly we can have discussions. And uh, we still face a lot of uh, threats uh, around that, no longer around COVID-19, but now it's around activism. And just to finish up, the word activism was given a bad name. Uh, something that you know we've been trying to to bring back and to say that it's not a bad it's not a bad name. Um, so I think if we look at equity, if we look at vaccine uh, vaccination, we look at it even just controlling uh, somehow uh, COVID nineteen. The issue is so compounded in some of these countries that I think we need much more attention from the world and to look at how this messaging and activism actually will work hand in hand. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, that's really interesting. And I want to dig into um, and touch upon some of your points and, and, and hear from each of you, how can we fuel this movement that I was, I'm very encouraged to hear about. But before we do that, maybe I can ask you, Fatima, to just ensure that we understand the scale and scope of the vaccine uh, inequity problems. You know, how does it manifest and what are its drivers? Uh, Fatima, maybe you can help us understand, you know, what's the scale and scope of the problem? How, how's it manifesting? Thanks. And, you know, I'd encourage you to all follow Tim Frieden. Uh, I'm really fortunate to be on the advisory group of Resolve to Save Lives. And I think when you have the former CDC director talking about vaccine inequity, and the pernicious role and, you know, the forms of power that the pharmaceutical industry is exercising in a pandemic, then you know that our activism is actually working because we have public professionals, scientists, lawyers, jurists, uh, journalists even, basically within a year, understanding the deep systemic issues and, and the role that, that the pharmaceutical industry plays. So how does the inequity basically manifest itself? Well, it did so in three ways. The first is that the Global North bought up all the supplies. We've written about this in the British Medical Journal. So the Global South was told to rely on COVAX as a mechanism 
that would try to voluntarily encourage uh, pharmaceutical companies to join into a pooled uh, negotiation and pooled supply mechanism, which we know from HIV AIDS never, never works. It really works if you rely on benevolence. Um, and so what they did was to sign multiple bilateral agreements, which is why countries in Europe and the U.S. in particular were prioritized in terms of the available supplies earlier this year. So once these vaccine programs started in, in a number of those countries in the global south, we were still waiting for supplies. And in fact, many countries in Africa are still waiting for supplies because we were told to rely on COVAX. When it became clear, and you know, we had already called out COVAX towards the end of last year, we said it's part of a big, bigger global health injustice. This is not going to deal with the biggest systemic issues around, in particular, IP monopolies and the role of pharmaceutical companies. And not just the CEOs, but the boards of these companies who were, we from the beginning, you could already see were more interested in extracting an enormous amount of profit than in actually sharing the technology and transferring the know-how, uh, particularly in relation to vaccines, but but then also in relation to diagnostics. So as a result of COVAX not uh, fully materializing, and it's also had to cut down on its projections um, because it doesn't have sufficient supplies for 2020. One, and the bilaterals that had already been signed to benefit some of the richer nations, you had the Global South basically begging and waiting for supplies, relying on a drip feed of donations, and in some cases, like South Africa, signing their own bilateral agreements, which basically meant that a country like Ghana, for example, was still waiting for supplies while South Africa was getting uh, both a donation and direct supplies from Pfizer. So, you know, one day we'll have to write the book, right, about how the greed and how the inequity actually played out. But the net result of all of this and all of the what I call shenanigans of the industry and of richer nations and particularly uh, leaders like Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel and Macron and for a long time also Biden, uh, including the Trump administration, there's, there's been a lot of administrations that have not been on the side of access and equity. The net result is that only 10 countries in Africa have actually reached 10% target. Uh, of, of populations being vaccinated in their country. Many countries in Africa, in fact, almost all, if you look at the Our World in Data map, you'll see is a very light yellow, which means that less than 20% of people are fully vaccinated. I mean, the stats from WHO is that on the whole continent, if you take it cumulatively, less than 10% of people are fully vaccinated. We don't have sufficient supplies. We're waiting for supplies for a very long time from a partial full and finished license agreement between Johnson & Johnson and Aspen. We don't have sufficient supplies from COVAX. We can't rely on the bilaterals. I mean, Botswana signed an agreement with Moderna and they've been waiting and waiting for those supplies. So what you have basically to summarize is a situation where we didn't think would happen after the HIV AIDS crisis, where the pharmaceutical industry would continue to exercise so much of power. And basically, like I've argued, you know, many times before they've played God in a pandemic. And, you know, what's incredulous is that we were told after the HIV AIDS crisis through the DAR declaration that this would never happen again. We would have the flexibilities. We would be able to use trade rules to our benefit. But that hasn't materialized. If you look at what's happening with Moderna, if you look at what's happening with Canada and BioLease and Johnson & Johnson, and I mean, we have ample examples of, of these kinds of drip-feed licenses, which basically prioritizes monopoly power and concentrates control in the hands of a few CEOs. So right now, 
basically the situation is that four men, four white men in the global north are making all of the decisions that basically affect millions and millions of people in the global south. They have unfettered control. Governments are scared to take them on. And it's only us as civil society and as activists on the street and as medicine access activists that can actually change the trajectory and change the cause of, of what is basically unfolding. A few million people have died already. There's an undercounting of deaths in Africa in particular. I'm just focusing on my continent. Um, but our activists are telling us that similar situation is playing out in Latin America and Asia. So what's happening is that COVID is now becoming uh, once again, like with HIV AIDS, the disease of the neglected, particularly in the global south, while in the global north, you are administering third and fourth shots. In our parts of the world, many people haven't even received shot number one. Wow, that's compelling and disturbing. I mean, that 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 you bring up that that the concentrations of power and how um, you know the sort of corporate determinants of health have conspired to make just four men responsible for. The fate of millions is stark. Um, I do want to, Greg, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, in some ways we faced this before, um, you know, again, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, as, you know, research companies were being slow uh, to research antiretrovirals and other avenues. I was r reminded of, you know, last year, Larry Kramer, who was a prominent HIV AIDS activist, passed away. And um, among the people who, memorialized him was Anthony Fauci, um, who, who talked about how Kramer was really outlandish and even abusive, um, you know, in public, but in, in other forms, really, he and Dr. Fauci really created a friendship and that I thought it was a great illustration of something Fatima touched on, which is there's this dynamic relationship between successful activists um, you know, civil society agitators, but also government champions um, who not always agree, but are pushing forward together. And Fauci and Kramer really both understood that relationship. Um, I was thinking about a lot of our listeners who are people who work in government or rely on relationships with government. They might not always feel like they can be the ones who do direct action. They not might not be the ones who are working directly with grassroots power sources, um, and I was thinking to ask you, you know, what does activism look like in the form of a policymaker or a champion or a researcher and scientist in, in the vaccine issue, equity issue? What can we learn, learn from HIV AIDS era? Thanks, Stephen. So, you know, you can ask yourself what you would do during some of, some of the darkest, horrible times in, in sort of human history and think, what would I have done? And this is one of them, right? You know, the description that Fatima has given about the sort of gross inequities in vaccination for COVID-19 is really going to lead to the deaths of millions of people. So, so some of us can do old act up style demonstrations and, and, and get in the face of public officials. So, so some of us can do old school act up demonstrations and, um, tackle public officials. Um, but as Fatima well knows, we've had a lot of scientific allies, both in the uh, the fight for access to antiviral therapy and the fight for access to COVID vaccines. We've had lots of researchers um, come on side. And if you work for a government agency or you work for a big NGO, um, you still have a responsibility uh, uh, as a citizen of this world to do what's right in this moment of crisis. And so, you know, you can work from the inside to make change. You can talk to your superiors, you can talk to your coworkers about this. And yes, you have to think about what your role will be in this. Will you just stay silent and watch the sort of um, toll of deaths tick up 
week by week, month by month, as we still have um, such poor access to vaccines outside of the global north. But what cannot uh, sort of be countenance now is people sitting on the sidelines and saying, it's not my job, I'm not involved, I can't get involved. Um, because, you know, history will, will judge you harshly, right? Um, there, there are too many people dying now for, for, for us to be bystanders uh, in, in what is premeditated murder uh, on a global scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maria, I want to turn back to you for a minute and, and talk about, um, you know, one thing we've heard is that there is common cause being made. You know, these connections between what has to happen in communities, as you said, this fighting stigma, thinking about the role that corporates have um, in determining or blocking good health policy or vaccines from being disseminated. Is that something you're seeing in Tanzania or people who were formerly working on one type of issue coming to work on, you know, developing common cause with people fighting for vaccine equity? What does that look like? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And I think when it comes to the larger community, I think that there is a lot of uh, relief, um, that there is now acceptance around that. And that is something that's clearly very important, that people have come to accept that there is COVID-19, it is killing people, there is a need actually to do the social distancing. So I think that's a very good start. Uh, also, uh, it has been very important to to take it back to more public health and less politics and less of using the political sort of um, podium to to try to push out, um, you know, one given uh, issue like COVID-19 vaccines. But when it comes to distribution, it is very true that distribution happened very slowly. But according to the figures that we're seeing, we're seeing that it's suddenly having uh, some uptake, especially after the initial you know, very few who were, who were really eagerly waiting for the vaccine to be vaccinated. But there was a, a moment when we did see when it came to the distribution of vaccines that priority was given to those who are closer to the political power. Uh, there was a public display of many politicians and political appointees getting vaccinated. So that was one, one, one area whereby we really pushed to say that this needs to go out for those who are vulnerable. And they're the ones who should be given the priority. Another group that has, I think, been very useful in pushing for, for basically vaccine equity on a national level have been the healthcare workers. Um, they, they, they did actually quite a good, um, put on a quite a good uh, force of resistance even during the, the, the year, the time of when there was denialism. Uh, but uh, it wasn't done formally. It was done on, on the level. We did a survey through Change Tanzania about COVID-19 prevalence in Tanzania, which was done uh, through a Google survey, and we partnered up with a CSO in, in Nigeria that helped us to assess the results. And what it showed was that the doctors would not be able to necessarily uh, officially give lab results for COVID-19, but they would they would uh, be able to do from what they called diagnosis, uh, clinical diagnosis, just from, from symptoms. And that, I think, in itself was really helpful because they would advise the patient and the patient's family that, you know, from the symptoms, we think that this person is COVID-19 positive. So kindly make sure that you follow all these protocols. When it comes to the vaccine, uh, they, they eventually have been prioritized. So to some extent, but as I said, again, because of the stigma, there's still some who resist, even though they're healthcare workers. So that is one very big, I think, the issue that we're still tackling. But when it comes to the more global level, I think that, um, and I completely agree with Fatima, that there is kind of uh, attitude toward 
you know, we, it's like an afterthought. Uh, how is now um, a country like Tanzania getting? Well, you know, they should, you know, we should just be grateful to get a million vaccines from from you know Johnson and Johnson, uh, and then the next batch that we're getting is uh, is, is Sinovac, and then the next batch we're going to get is AstraZeneca or or Moderna, and then you have the country basically facing um, you know a certain type of uh, mixing up of, of vaccines, not knowing uh, you know who got when. Uh, we have got a system online that is not necessarily working very well, and people are not that digital savvy. So sometimes they they would just get vaccinated, but they would not fill in properly their forms online. So there was a big big issue around that as well. So what is happening is that I think that the the approach of taking a, a more of a, a developed country model and trying to apply that to countries whereby healthcare as it is is just an issue, just getting um, malaria bugs out is a problem. So if we're looking at maternal mortality rates and we see what kind of a problem it is in terms of infrastructure, in terms of organizing, in terms of getting everything in line in order to be able to give quality care, the vaccine itself, just the the, the whole issue around uh, vaccination is becoming a huge challenge in itself because this is unlike what, what happens with children. These are adults who have to make, who have to consent. They have to be able to understand what is happening and it is becoming more and more a problem. I think that very soon we are seeing a lot of countries are, are, are tying travel, visa and everything to vaccination. That could be uh, to the advantage of the few who travel. But the majority of the people in Tanzania and the rest of Africa don't travel. So what will be the impetus or what will be the, the what will motivate them to actually go and get vaccinated, even if they may not necessarily deny COVID or they may not necessarily have vaccine hesitancy. They just don't have the time. Uh, you know, maybe they find the, 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 the vaccination um, center to be a little far. They can't be bothered. And that's human nature. So how do you make that accessible to them? I think that is a huge challenge, and it is it is such a huge challenge that I don't see a given country alone grappling with that issue because, as I said, the healthcare system is already way overwhelmed even before COVID-19, and this just adds on top of all the trouble that exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I'm hearing in, in your comments is that your COVID-19 has caused this crisis and that has forced people to understand or to contend with the more public health fundamentals across the board, not just vaccine inequity. That's a symptomatic of a much larger issue nationally. And then internationally as well, we, we have people making common cause and confronting, you know, the fact that, you know, corporates and, you know, have power to keep vaccines from distributing. I'm wondering, Fatima, to turn back to you, um, if we are, if we're postulating that we're gaining momentum, we're growing a movement to um, to have public health be more front and center and human equity and human rights be more front and center decision making, what's the most important call to action right now? Um, like, what's the what's the one or two, what are the one or two things we want people to mobilize behind, and and how can we fuel that? Do you think? I think the most immediate thing has to be to convey the demands of the People's Vaccine Alliance globally, which is to share the technology with any and every company in the world that can currently make the vaccines. We have a major supply crisis. Our pipelines are being interrupted by a number of different factors, which we can talk about on another show. But the point is that if we are going to, if we are not going to scale up 
the sharing of knowledge. And if we're going to allow this unfettered hoarding of knowledge, right? And that also is a form of denial. I mean, you can be a scientific denialist, you can be a climate denialist, and you can be a company that denies the sharing of life-saving knowledge and interventions. I mean, we've said this before in the HIV AIDS crisis. These are not jewels. These are not handbags. These are not cars. These are life-saving interventions that literally can be the difference between infection, illness, and death. So there has to be a greater sharing of technology and know-how. And the second demand has to be that the TRIPS waiver needs to be finalized now and passed. I mean, it's 15 months since the TRIPS waiver or 13 months since the TRIPS waiver proposal was actually first uh, tabled. And the WTO is still negotiating in the middle of a pandemic while millions of us were getting sick and dying. They were taking a summer break. I mean, how can you have a situation where the World Trade Organization is still negotiating a simple, elegant, short-term time-bound waiver on intellectual property provisions related to diagnostic medicines and vaccines for COVID, for this particular pandemic. So those would be my two most important demands. The third is that there's a lot of researchers and public health scientists on this call. I can see them right now. They are allies. We need you to be the whistleblowers. You have to share whatever knowledge you have with us. Like Craig said, you need to be on the right side of history. This, in a 100 years, is one of the worst pandemics we face. To observe confidentiality, to observe non-disclosure agreements, to observe these broad indemnification schemes is really incredulous. We need whistleblowers to tell us what's in those contracts, and we need whistleblowers to start sharing the knowledge. And then finally, Steve, what we need is researchers to say to drug companies, no, you will not test your vaccines or medicines going forward in Africa until we are guaranteed equitable post-trial access. We did the trials for Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. We contributed to knowledge so that you could all benefit before us. We're still waiting for supplies, and we're not guaranteed sufficient supplies in the next two to three years. So, you know, there really has to be a reckoning with the pharmaceutical companies. You want to do your research in Africa, then something has to fundamentally change. Thank you. And Greg, I want to give you the opportunity to build on that. And I'm also curious in, in the, you know, team has laid out the what we want, and I was interested in your thoughts of, you know, how do we fuel the effort to get these objectives in your mind? Um, and I'll be bringing some other folks up to the front to ask their questions after you finish speaking. Hi, Steve. Um, so I, I just think we just need to do the basics. Right now, everybody on this call has to get on the phone to their members of Congress, to the White House, um, and get 10 friends to do it. We need to build the pressure on Congress and the White House to do the right thing. Yes, um, there are other leaders around the world that need to be held to, to account. And if you're in, in those other countries, you should do the same. But the point is, is now we need a massive mobilization pressure campaign to get the U.S. government to ex exert its rights to the Moderna vaccine, which has contested, but use the full force of the U.S. government's Defense Production Act and other methods to make sure that we can get technology transferred uh, to, to other producers so we can scale up vaccines and aren't being held hostage to Albert Borland's Devon Bonsell. So the point is, is do the basics, right? Do the basics. Get on the phone, write letters, send emails, and don't relent because, you know, people are going to look back at this time and ask, what were you doing while people were dying? Great, thank you. And we I brought uh, someone who raised their hand up to the stage. Um, Happiness Peter is your screen name. Would you like to ask a question? Yeah, I, actually, I don't even want to ask a question. I just want to point out something that I don't know. Maybe I missed it and you already discussed it. 
because one of the things I actually, I live in a very privileged world. And one of the things that it blew my mind that, and I'm happy for science, but it makes me think as an African, when uh, access to vaccines has become such a, a, a politicized, and here I am, one of my kids already received a vaccine while the rest of Africa and the rest of the world is still struggling. But one of the things that I don't know if you already spoke about it is the mixed message that we are receiving. Especially, for instance, I have a cousin who lived in China and got the vaccine and was supposed to travel to come and see us in the state. But he couldn't come to the US. He had to go to Tanzania and receive the Johnson and Johnson because the US will not accept the Sino. So you can see the mixed messages that we are sending out throughout the world and why in countries such as Africa, who have been used in so many times as guinea pigs for these vaccine, uh, when they're doing the vaccine testing, that's why there's been also a lot of refusal for so many people not, mm -hmm. to, uh, not to buy into uh, being vaccinated. But you know, what the I mean for Africans, we are they're confused. Like, who should we trust? And that's the message that we need to send across. Like every vaccine, uh, and I have mm -hmm. invested in pharmaceutical. Every vaccine has to be at some point really promoted. We cannot afford for the African continent to say that the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and Johnson are the only vaccines that the world has to accept. So the Western world needs to stop politicizing this whole vaccine issue. We as Africans, we want to be able to be told and to be respected, but also to be tr to trust. Thanks for that. Maria, I want to give you a chance to, um, to, to speak to the issue of trust and building credibility. And, you know, that's a specialty area of yours is, you know, media and building up confidence and, 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 and education, basically. Do you want to speak to this area of uh, politis politicization of the uh, vaccination and, and, and building public willingness um, to, you know, to engage in protective behaviors from masking to um, vaccination to social distancing? Sure. Uh, thank you so much. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, coming from somebody like happiness, it's quite understandable. Um, there is there is a sense that there are certain types of vaccines that are more acceptable. So it's not only for the U.S. I think there's a number of countries where they've set up the bar quite high, saying that, you know, you need to have these vaccines and these are the ones that we recognize. But I think this uh, politicization is happening also at the level of the WHO, whereby we've seen there's been... Um, you know, quite a late approval of some of the vaccines like uh, the, the Chinese and some of the others. So that, I think, in itself is a narrative that needs to be addressed. And it's very important to address because, as rightfully, I think it's pointed out, soon we're going to have what we have also in HIV AIDS, which is the generic drugs. So if if the, the statement is going to be so strong that only those that are manufactured in a certain from a certain company or in a certain country are the ones that will be recognized, for example, for international travel, then that will mean that some of the African countries whereby it, they will be forced again to review what they're doing 
what are they buying? And this could be costing them. So there is that angle which Fatima has talked about is whether now the question comes, is this now done for profit or for saving lives? I think that is so important. And this is something that when it comes to educating people, it has to be made very clear. Now, the problem is we are fighting misinformation on so many levels. So we are fighting now the ones who are vaccine hesitant and who do not want to accept any kind of vaccine or some people who are half-informed, and then they come and, you know, mix up what, what the mRNA is and the DNA, and that will change your DNA. And, and there's so many, you know, really outrageous claims out there. So suddenly, we are not only then talking about which vaccine is better or how to get access to any vaccine, but suddenly we are also fighting, saying, when, you know, when you hear this, this is not true. Uh, I think that there has to be a much bigger boldness on the part both of you know governments, uh, but also on part of communities, different communities, to sort of push back against narratives that are harmful for the overall health. And the reason this is very important, and I've come to see that, is that it is so much more easier to walk away and to say this is not my problem. And I and I, I'm not sure whether it's Fatima who said it uh, that you know those who are empowered or those who have access uh, don't feel that this is their problem. It's like, yeah, there's this group of people who are really not getting what they need to get. But you know what? I'm okay. I'm safe. And I'm walking away from this. And that is where I think there has to be so much work to be done. Um, I think this is where uh, activism has to, be, has to be really intensive and sort of make it everybody's business to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated, everybody's protected against COVID-19, because rightfully so, what Fatima has said, this is not only just, uh, just, and I'm just putting it really in quotation marks, it's not just a health problem. It is a huge, it has given an impact that is now making it an economic issue. It has become a political issue. It has become every kind of issue because it's so compounded. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We had another colleague who asked to speak, uh, Yaya Kifiatu. Would you like to uh, ask a, a brief question to our, our panelists? Uh, I'm amazed with what you're doing. This is really good. But I'm also ashamed that Africa has always to go around uh, 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 asking for help. Uh, Africa is not that uh, uh, helpless, but we always see people dying of hunger, whereas uh, we have plenty of land to uh, plant food. We Pharmaceuticals, I don't know why the whole of Africa that don't have even one joint a research center where pharmaceuticals or or vaccines can be developed and talking about uh, technology transfer instead of uh, uh, them bringing the the, uh, the north bringing the technology to africa get a few africans into these uh, inst institutions learn the technology and then come and produce these things uh, ourselves so I, I i should say i'm ashamed as a as, a, as an african that always we have to go around uh, uh, with, with a ball on our hand uh, asking for handouts, uh, whereas we, uh, we have a continent that is very rich and very capable of uh, taking care of these things. So in a, in a way of, 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 it's not really a question, it's a comment, but if anyone wants to, to chime in there as to why are we, particularly Maria, she's, she's from the same country as me and uh, happiness as well, as to why do we always have to go and ask for help, even for things that we can do for ourselves? Thank you. I, I saw Fatima looks like she wants to jump yeah. in on this. 
So I'd, I'd like to push back a little on that narrative. They actually came to us for help. All of these pharmaceutical companies asked us to research the vaccine towards last year and the beginning of this year. Like I said, we contributed to the knowledge of those vaccines, but we weren't guaranteed access. And far from us actually begging, what the AU envoy did was to sign the deals. The money is there. The contracts have been signed. We're just not the preferred customer because let's just call this what it is, racism, because actually nobody really cares about black and brown people in Africa or in Latin America, which is why we are not the priority customer, which is why we were filling and finishing vaccines in South Africa at the time when Africa really needed supplies and they were being exported to Europe because the terms of the contract were that the European nations would be the preferred customers for Johnson & Johnson or for Pfizer or for AstraZeneca. The same thing happened where the UK was a preferred customer in terms of the AstraZeneca contract. So in this particular situation, the mRNA hubs were set up, different companies came forward, multiple companies in Africa actually went to the WHO and said, we have existing capacity to be able to help fully manufacture mRNA vaccines. What did the companies do? Refused to share the technology and transfer, doesn't want us to be self-sufficient or independent, gave two fill and finish licenses, and a few weeks ago made a big you know, hullabaloo about potentially setting up one day a manufacturing plant for mRNA vaccines in maybe Senegal and maybe Rwanda without willing to explicitly cooperate right now or to share the technology right now and have been blocking the TRIPS waiver. So yes, in the one part, we had to basically say, can COVAX give us supplies? Can we get some donations? But those are, as somebody said earlier, you know, philanthropy is not sustainable. Charity is not sustainable. We want the technology and we want our supplies in terms of the contract, but none of the companies are willing to share the technology, give up control, or actually deliver supplies as promised. Do our governments have the political uh, leadership and ability to call the drug companies bluff out? Because these, these CEOs should not be God, right? They should not be acting like God in a pandemic. Issue the compulsory licenses, go to vote on the TRIPS waiver. I mean, what are African countries now going to do? They were caught napping. We had to do work with investigative journalists and whistleblowers to tell African leaders that vaccines were being exported to Europe. Our government signed a contract that allowed that. The AU envoy and everybody else in Africa was surprised when they found out that vaccines were being shipped off to Europe when Africa needed them. So, you know, there also has to be a question. I think the Yahya is right the, that to some extent, we also have to ask our African leaders, what were they doing? Because the money was there. They've been given the necessary loans. And also, why is it that 99% of all of our other vaccines are being brought from other countries? What has Africa done to invest in its own manufacturing capacity? And then, of course, the issue is when we do invest in the manufacturing capacity, why are the CEOs of these drug companies refusing to share the technology with us and to actually support scaling up of the pharmaceutical industry in Africa? That's, that's tremendous. And just to underline that, you know, the, the technical capacity is there. It's the political and, um, and, and global structures that are keeping African countries from manufacturing their own um, you know, vaccines. Um, we have just a few minutes left and I want to give you each a chance if you want for a concluding thought um, or, or a call to action. Um, Maria, do you have a, a, a concluding thought you'd like to share with our audience? 
Sure. Um, I think, I think for me, just, I just love, as I said, uh, and I tweeted that out, I just love the energy. I think that, uh, you know, this is really needed and there has to be more conversations, more roundtables and more public outcry around vaccine equity, but also around holding responsible uh, leaders. Um, that has been so important. And I understood Yahya's frustration around that. You know, it's it's very important for the people of Africa to feel that they are empowered just as much as any other citizen, uh, despite whatever challenges we may face, whatever, you know, um, uphill battle, we have to be empowered. So I, I, I really hope that uh, this could be the start of, of a much larger conversation around the empowerment of the, of the communities, of people, but also holding accountable uh, power. Because power, it doesn't matter whether it's the pharmaceutical companies or it's the politicians who are the ones who are holding the power, but that power has to be challenged continuously. And it is scary because they do have, of course, the ability to counter it, but it is up to us. And and really, for one of the things that I've learned uh, with, with everybody else from our activism uh, is that the main important thing is always to have solidarity. So I would love to see the spirit continue and uh, I really thank everyone for this opportunity. I hope to to see more collaboration. And Fatima, way to go. And Greg, keep it thank up. Thank you. And Greg, uh, you've been you've been strident in your calls for everyone listening um, and everyone to get off the sidelines and into the arena and to call for change. Yeah, I mean, I would say also find your your find the people who can help you do this. You know, there's people in every country who are fighting for access to medicines and access to vaccines. You don't have to do it alone. Um, there's plenty of people in the U.S. There's plenty of people in South Africa and Kenya and other places and Tanzania and other places that that you can you can join up with to be part of this fight. You don't have to do it alone. Thank you. And Fatima, the final word uh, from our panelists comes from you. You know. I just want to say that we're not just dealing with issues around vaccine equity, we're dealing with deep-seated issues of racism. And I want to tell you two quick stories about why I believe that we're just on the receiving end of of, of the world's racism. Macron flew into South Africa with 2,500 vaccine supplies in the middle of this year for his visit with President Ramaphosa. Those supplies were for French citizens and the French embassy staff, not for South Africans. While we were waiting for vaccines from Johnson & Johnson, which we then later found out was actually being exported to Europe. The second is we in South Africa have received the Pfizer vaccine, double dose, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Even we were put on a red list by the UK government that decided that all of Africa would be considered unvaccinated, even if you got the Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So, Maria, it's not just about Sputnik and it's not just about, you know, uh, the Russian or the Chinese vaccines. There's a deep-seated racism that is now informing all of the travel rules, all of the different policy responses, including the TRIPS waiver. And a lot of those racist assumptions are feeding into this narrative that Africa must always rely on charity. Africa can never make its own vaccines and Africa can never benefit from technology transfer. And so we need to fight for vaccine equity, but we also need to be very mindful of the racism and the racist views that are embedded in all of this work that is now uh, playing out, which we are going to have to address. And thanks for having us on the show. Yes, and thanks for connecting that to the fund more some fundamental social issues as well. And, uh, and I just want to thank each of you for a 
fascinating hour and covering such a broad topic. Um, I certainly left more dedicated to public health activism and um, more specifically to take action on addressing COVID-19 vaccine equity. Um, if you're listening live or recorded, I want to encourage you to follow Vital Strategies at Vital Strat on Twitter. Um, I also want to ask you to go to vitalstrategies.org slash reimagine and join our campaign to make public health more central to the, the composition of the places we work, live and play, and more central to government decision-making so that they support health and equity. And last but not least, uh, please join us next week, Thursday, same time, 10 Eastern Standard for our discussion, counting everyone for a more inclusive, equitable, and healthier world. We'll be talking to a fascinating set of panelists who are discussing birth and death registration, um, you know, data and how the lack of systems that produce you know, regular data um, and accurate data are keeping many countries from the best types, um, implementing the best um, and most efficient life-saving policy decisions, including things like when and where and how to deliver vaccines. Thanks again for each of you listening and thanks to each of our fantastic panelists today. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.